the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. This is why there can be no compromise with idolatry. It is his jealousy which is different. The word here means a consuming zeal focused on the one that is loved. Here the Lord says the danger of compromise, it's just gradual. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. Moses had spent 40 days receiving from God the civil and ceremonial laws that the Israelites were to obey. Moses came down Mount Sinai and was appalled to find the Israelites were worshiping a golden calf that Aaron had crafted. God told Moses that he would no longer go with Israel to the land that was promised to them. The people mourned and wept. They repented in their hearts. Moses reasoned with God and asked him to reveal his nature to them. God spoke his character to Moses, that he is merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, by no means pardoning the guilty. God forgave the Israelites, but is the covenant still intact? Will the Israelites need to do something else to renew the covenant between them and God? We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 34, verse 10. We saw Israel, you know, Moses goes up on the mountain, and then he comes down, and of course, uh, he sees Israel committing idolatry, sexual morality. Anger rises up, he throws down the tablets, he comes down, deals with their sin, goes to the Lord, seeks a pardon, the Lord says no. And then we find this process of Moses continuing to cry out, persevering in prayer, where the Lord does answer, and the Lord does decide to forgive. And so Moses you know, in a sense, strikes while the iron is hot and says, Lord, you've been so good to me to show me all these things. I don't deserve any of that. Would you show me your glory? And of course, the glorious beginning of chapter 34, where the Lord descends in the cloud, places Moses in the cleft of the rock, and and he proclaims his name. He reveals his character to Moses. Well, after God reveals his character to Moses, Moses falls on his face and he asks for a full pardon. He says in verse 9 of chapter 34, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray you, go among us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. In spite of the rebellious character of the people, he pleads with God to take them for his inheritance and to be in their midst for good as they travel. And you know, he does so in full confidence that God will say yes, not because of anything he's earned, but because of who God is that he will say yes. And you know what? The rest of chapter 34 is God's yes. And yet it is so much more. I don't have enough time to do it tonight, but if you go and you read chapter 23 of Exodus, and then after you read that, read Exodus 34 again, and uh, this portion on, and they are so similar. It's almost as if God rewinds the tape of time to that point in the past, and then he moves forward as if the calf never happened. And what a beautiful picture of forgiveness that is.
you know? That God literally rewinds the tape and pretends like it never happened, you know? Now, what's interesting, though, is in light of that forgiveness, we see God repeats everything the same. He still gives his admonition against idolatry. He still tells them to keep the feasts. He promises to drive out the Canaanites, and he warns them not to make any deals with them. The speeches are so similar. But this teaches us two important truths. You know, God's standard never changes, even after we're forgiven. His righteousness is still righteousness. Right is still right. Wrong is still wrong. And he wants us to live rightly and not live wrongly, even though we're forgiven. But oh, how sweet it is to be forgiven by a God who treats us as if our sin never happened. He's truly the God of second chances. So with that in mind, verse 10, chapter 34. And he said, behold, or check this out, Moses, I make a covenant before all thy people I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among which you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible or awesome thing that I will do with you. So Moses asked for a full pardon. Go in our midst. Lord, even though, yeah, we're stiff-necked, but Lord, pardon our iniquity. Take us for your inheritance. And the Lord says, I will. And so he says, I make a covenant. Now, he'd already made the covenant, but it's just a renewal of of the covenant that he had made. He starts from scratch again. Behold, I make a new covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels. See, what had been lost here is now fully restored. He will be their God and they will be his people. Oh, is not our God forgiving and gracious? How many times have we come to him and say, Lord, I know I shouldn't have done it, but I did it again. And will you please forgive me? And, you know, we, we have it in our mind and somehow the Lord's thinking, uh, I don't want to, but I guess I have to. Not at all. The Lord is so gracious. He's so forgiving. He is so kind. And so as he did the first time, as when God set up the covenant with them, he starts off by explaining what he will do for them. And then he's going to talk about what he wants them to do in obedience to him. So he starts off by saying, I'm going to do marvels, wonders. The word there, marvels, means something wonderful, amazing, or special. And when we look at Israel's history, God did tons of amazing and wonderful and special things. He says, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation. And surely God did that and fulfilled that promise to Israel. And all the people among which you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. The word here, the reason they translate it terrible is because it had the idea of something that makes you take a step back because it reveals how small you are and how big God is. You remember David when he, you know, I think it's two Psalms where he says, man, he's looking out at the stars and he sees how big the universe is and he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man, that you'd even think about him. You've got these massive balls of gas. I was reading uh, the other day that some of the shots they're sending back from Jupiter uh, through this satellite that's in orbit around there is showing these, you know, water plumes, they think, residue or something along those lines that shows that there's water underneath the surface, the hard surface of, of Jupiter, and these water plumes come up, and, you know, and I'm just thinking, that's amazing. You've got a, a planet that's, you know, how many times size a, a bigger than the size of our planet? Greg's laughing back there. He's like, yeah, I saw the photos the other day, you know? <laughs> You know, I got here, I, when I first got here, I, I made just an offhanded joke. I said, well, it's not like it's rocket science. And someone said to me, you know, we have people that work at NASA here. So for some people, it is rocket science. <laughs> so anyway, you know, I was you know, fascinated by the vastness of this, you know, the, this thing that we, we are just exploring. God knows it all. And yet he zeroes in and hones in on us. What an amazing thing the Lord. He says, I'm going to do a, a terrible thing, you know, an awesome thing, something that makes you take a step back because, God, you're so big, you're so amazing, and, and you would think of me? Wow. 
So that's God's part of the deal. He says, I will do this. Their part of the deal, verse 11, they must, number one, not make compromise with idolatry, which is important because that's what they had just done. He says, observe you that which I command you this day. Behold, I drive out before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. He says, I'm going to do all this, but you need to observe what I command you this day. The word observe there, it means to obey with diligence and attention to detail. I'm an attention to detail person. Now, that doesn't necessarily make me easy to live with, but it does tend to make me someone that does things right. And so the Lord here explains that, you know, our obedience should be along those lines. Our obedience should be done in such a way that we pay attention to detail and we obey with diligence. A lot of times my kids, and I'm sure your kids have done this, you know, they, you know, they, they, they did, well, so here's what happened yesterday. Every Saturday, they're supposed to go outside and clean up any trash in the yard, anything, you know, the scraps or something maybe fell out of the trash can or stuff that blew up on the, that's part of their chores. They're supposed to do it every Saturday, one day a week, probably takes maybe 30 minutes, not a big deal. You would have thought I asked them to move a continent. I mean, I came out there and I was, and I was like, okay, guys, go do this, you know, before you can, you know, have your day, whatever. And, you know, and they're just, you know, dragging and whatever, getting out there and, you know, and then they come right back in. I mean, not even like a minute later, you know, and, and I said, um, I said, you got everything? Like, well, yeah, we got everything from the front end backyard. Oh, now this happened about three or four times till you have to get your dad voice on and you have to go, if I go out there and I find one scrap of anything, everyone's grounded, you know? And of course they're all scrambling, oh, you know, picking up trees, you know, trying to find what's underneath it. <laughs> You know, what what I explain to him is I say, I know it may not seem like a big deal to you, but it's not even necessarily about the chore right now. It's about your heart. Because what you're showing is a heart that just wants to skate by and not really obey. And while that's, you know, a hard lesson to learn, the Lord calls us to do the same thing, to obey with diligence and an attention to detail. And do we do that? Do we obey God diligently? And do we obey him with an attention to detail? And so, you know, the Lord, he says, behold, I'm going to drive them out. I'm going to take care of you in this. So I want you to honor me with your obedience. Now, this blew me away when I read this because the Lord has said this a couple times before that he will drive them out. But I, for whatever reason, I didn't look, look up the word until this time. The word means to banish from one place to another, implying social estrangement. Now, you can't be socially estranged from someone if you're dead. So what's your point, Will? It means that God's plan wasn't originally to wipe them out. He wouldn't have had Israel kill them if they had left when Israel came. But they chose to stay and they chose to fight God's plan. And that forced Israel to wipe them out. Because socially intertwining wasn't an option due to their refusal to turn from their wicked behavior. There wasn't an option. So the option that God gave them was leave. And they chose not to leave, they chose to fight. Now what's fascinating is you look at those who didn't choose to fight. And what did God do? Did he kill them? He forgave them. Or he allowed Israel to make, you know, make a, a build a relationship with them. And you know, Rahab the harlot, we see the Gibeonites, we see various people groups that were in this situation that God was merciful to. Some who didn't even do it the right way. Some were deceptive like the Gibeonites. And yet, because they did not fight against God, the Lord was gracious and merciful to them. Sometimes people have a problem with the whole wiping out of all the Canaanites. And yet that was never God's intention to wipe them all out. 
They chose to fight against God. At the end of Revelation, when you read about it, when the Lord returns, it makes specific mention that when they see the Lord, they're going to stop fighting each other because the Lord's going to come back to save us from World War III. He's going to come back and save us from ourselves because he said, if I didn't come back, there'd be no life left on the earth. That was from the Lord's own mouth in Matthew 24. So he comes back, but they don't look at him and go, oh, good, you're going to rescue us. No, they all decide, you know what? We can't get along. We're ready to destroy the whole planet because we hate each other, but we hate him more, and they're all going to turn their weapons on him. That's what it says. And the Bible says that blood will flow to the horse's bridles because with a word of his mouth, it says they'll melt. Now we hear that and we go, wow, that's harsh. He didn't want to do that. <laughs> but they've raised their fists defiantly and said, we're not submitting. We're not going anywhere. And the Lord says, well, the only other option is to judge you. The Lord does not delight in judgment. He delights in truth and he delights in righteousness. But his soul takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So God did not take pleasure in the death of the Canaanites. They forced Israel to this course of action because they refused to turn from their wicked behavior. And social intertwining was not an option. And so God tells him in verse 12, take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you go, lest it be for a snare in the midst of you. The word there, take heed, means beware, keep up a guard. Now it's interesting, he doesn't say beware of them. He doesn't say put up a guard against them. He says, take heed to who? Take heed to yourself. I think that's kind of funny. It might seem funny that we have to be on guard against ourselves, but it's so true. I am my own worst enemy. I am. And if you're married, you understand it because you start a fight, right? Oh, wait, nobody fights here. You encounter and begin intense fellowship with your spouse. And you say words. And as they're coming out of your mouth, you're thinking, that's going to end up on the couch. And you're thinking to yourself, why did you say that? Even as they're going out and you're hoping that somehow you can stop time and break the sound barrier and bring the words back, but it's too late. We are our own worst enemies. The scripture says exactly that. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, God's commandment, it's holy, it's righteous, it's good. He says, but the problem is me. For sin taking occasion by the commandment, it deceived me and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Problem's me. The commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. He says, take heed to yourself. You're going to be tempted to take the easy way out. Don't do it. Don't make any treaties or any deals, because if you do, it'll be a trap to you. See, the temptation would be to not fight, to convince themselves that they could coexist with these wicked people. But the Lord says, when it comes to idolatry, you must not compromise an inch. And so to ensure the disconnection from their way of life was complete, they were to destroy every remnant of idolatry they found. Verse 13. Instead of making a deal with them, you do the opposite. You will destroy their altars, you will break their images, and you will cut down their groves. So the altars there don't refer to the actual altar, but to the entire pagan worship center. Those who worshipped in Canaan back then, they had their temples and whatnot, but they had these places called the high places. The idea was is that the higher you are, the closer you were to God, and they were considered holy sites, special places. And they would have you know, stones erected around the top area, certain symbols and shapes that were considered powerful and connected to the gods better and whatnot. And he says that's what that refers to here. All these pagan worship centers, break them down. He says, uh, destroy them. Break their images. Any idol you find, break it into pieces. And then lastly, he says, cut down their, their groves. Now, God is not anti-tree. The word here for groves is actually poles, and it's the Asherah pole. These were poles that were carved in the shape of male genitals, and they were used in the worship of the Canaanite mother goddess, 
Asherah, the queen of heaven. If you want to see an Asherah pole, ride Everest. If you go to Animal Kingdom at Disney and you ride Everest, they're all over the place there. I know, so some of you are looking at me like, really? I remember the first time we rode on it, and just because of this is what I do, I, I looked around and I said, there's Asherah poles everywhere. And Bev's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, look at them, they're phallic symbols, you know? And, and sure enough, she's like, oh my goodness, they're right here in front of me. And all the kids are like, oh, how cute, you know? And Asherah, the queen of heaven, says, destroy all those, these poles that you find. They would, they would construct them, you know, in a circular area, and they would have their immoral rights in these things. And so he says, destroy them, cut them down. For, verse 14, you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. This is why there can be no compromise with idolatry. This word jealous is interesting. It's, it's only used five times in the Bible, and all of God. It's never used of man. You know, I find that funny because I've seen people critique the Bible and say, what do you, you know, God's jealous. He just, you know, he, he acts like a child. You know, he doesn't, he can't handle the fact that maybe you want to spend time with other people. He has to be first. Hold on a moment there. It's not man's jealousy that God is jealous with. It is his jealousy, which is different. The word here means a consuming zeal focused on the one that is loved. Now that sounds good. Consuming zeal focused on the one that is loved. Now that has both a positive and a negative aspect. This consuming love God has for us causes him to restore us when we've gone astray because he never stops loving us. It causes him to be good to us when we've rebelled and we only deserve judgment because he loves us, he's for us. But it also causes him to deal with us when we're unfaithful. And both are in mind here. The Lord is trying to protect Israel. Stay away from these idols. They aren't even real. They can't help you out at all. But there's a God out here who does love you without end. So stay away from the idols. Only worship me. But secondly... Stay away from the idols because you will incur my judgment if you don't. Now, maybe you're thinking, oh, I get the idol destruction, but why not a treaty, Will? God explains, verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call you, and you eat of his sacrifice. And you shall take of their daughters unto thy sons, and your daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make your sons go a-whoring after their gods." Here the Lord says the danger of compromise, it's just gradual. Like the devil doesn't show up with a pitchfork and say, hey, come worship me. What happens is, is little bit by little bit, he tempts us to compromise in the areas that we know we shouldn't. Before you know it, you were here with your relationship with the Lord, and but by little bit chunks like this, all of a sudden you find yourself over here. He says here that they'll go a-whoring after other gods. That's a hard word to use. And the reason that God uses it is because he views idolatry as spiritual adultery or spiritual prostitution. That's what that word means. It means to be unfaithful as a spouse or to act like a prostitute. So he makes us, he makes us his top priority and he wants us to do the same. We should do likewise. And so when we don't, he views it as being unfaithful. So is he our top priority? You know, is he number one to us? See, the danger is that even if Israel destroyed all the means of pagan worship, all the sites that were there, the people who followed those gods would eventually return to them. And Israel would be tempted to say, oh, these are our neighbors. We can't force our relationship with God on them, which is true. As long as we worship the Lord, we'll be fine. But then that compromise would lead to an invitation to dinner. And then you enjoy a meal of food sacrificed to an idol with your neighbor and you think, oh, they aren't that bad. They didn't turn into a demon when they ate the food. I didn't either. I guess everything's okay. And then his daughter likes your son and your son likes his daughter and they get married. And then lo and behold, your son is worshiping idols too. Compromise in the slightest of ways is dangerous. 
So Israel's part, first part of their side of the covenant is no compromise with idols. The second part of their covenant is no images of God. And this is a difference from Exodus 23. And the reason it's here is because this is the mistake they made with the calf. Verse 17, you shall make no molten gods. (laughs) The word there, molten, it means cast metal. It's the exact thing that that Aaron did. He made a cast metal god. And so it's a direct reference to the golden calf. Now, while God didn't mention the second commandment specifically in Exodus 23, he does so here so that Israel doesn't make the same mistake in the future. So it's not just worshiping the wrong God that's the problem. It's trying to make an image of God that we will now worship instead of the Lord, instead of just having our relationship with him. You know, I find this fascinating because when God forgives, his word says he casts our sin behind his back into the deepest sea. I used to say in the past that God had the ability to erase his memory, but I don't think that's entirely true. God is all-knowing. I think he simply chooses not to remember our sin when dealing with us. Don't you wish you could do that with people? God can do that in your heart. He can change your heart. He can do a work of forgiveness in your heart that when you see them, you don't see any of those past sins. That is always how God views us. Isn't that awesome? When he deals with us, he never deals with us according to our sin. He chooses not to remember it when he deals with us. It's not that he forgot it happened, but he chooses not to act on it, which is awesome. Well, Israel's part number three is they need to celebrate only sanctioned religious feasts. He says here in verse 18, the feast of unleavened bread shall you keep. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, in the time of the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. You know, this is so sad because while Moses was up on the mountain, remember Israel got bored. They got idle. They started to worry. And that idleness created a spiritual restlessness. See, God had promised feasts of celebration and remembrance, but his promise wasn't enough. They needed to do something. And so they copied the Egyptians and they started their own immoral feast to this golden calf. And it was horrible. And so God reminds them here, I only want you celebrating my appointed feasts and my feasts are being done my way, not in the imitation of pagan festivals. So he says here, you will keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you'll eat unleavened bread because that's the time I brought you out of Egypt. Now, I don't want to go into that feast because we went into it in Exodus 12 and Exodus 23 already. But to sum it up, this was the feast to remember how the Lord brought them out of Egypt so quickly and so powerfully that they had to eat unleavened bread. And they'd be reminded of that miracle every time they celebrated the feast for these seven days. Next, he mentions in verse 19, the firstborn offerings. He says, all that opens the matrix, in other words, all the firstborn, is mine, and every firstling among your cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is, that is male. That's basically saying that's mine too. But the firstling of, a, of an ass, of a donkey, he says you shall redeem it with a lamb. You don't sacrifice a, a donkey. And if you redeem him not, then you need to break his neck. In other words, God says you need to not be using him for your beast of burden uh, if you're not going to redeem him with an offering. All the firstborn of your sons shall you redeem Two, he says, and none shall appear before me empty. Now again, Exodus 13 and 22, a lot of repetition here. Exodus 13 and 22 give more instructions on this, but again, it directly relates to the Passover, which occurred during the same period as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Since God had spared the firstborn of man and beast of every family that celebrated the Passover in Egypt, these belonged to God. They had to be given to God either in service or be redeemed with money. And so the Lord says, do not come before me empty-handed. See, it would be tempting for an Israelite to say, well, that animal's mine. I took care of it and I need it. I'm losing money by giving it to God. But the Lord says, do not show up to have a relationship with me in the tabernacle if you're not going to put me first. 
Technically, the Lord says, I own everything you have. So give me this small thing I ask for in acknowledgement of that. Give me your first. Give me your best. Verse 21, the Sabbath feast. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In earing time and in harvest you shall rest. Now when we read verses 21 through 26, they're almost an exact repeat of Exodus 23, 10 through 19. Here it's a reference to the Sabbath day, the seventh day that they would rest. Earing time means plowing season, and then harvest time is when you gather in. And what he's basically saying is that even in the busiest time of the year, you must take time to rest and honor me. I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but I have seen people who are too busy to come to church because of their work or whatever it might be, and then they don't understand why they have problems. And I don't mean problems just like everyday problems, but that it seems like they're always struggling in their family. They're struggling in their marriage. They're struggling in their family relationships. They're struggling in their witness, all the various things. It's not that church is like a magical pill, but there is something in saying to God, Lord, I need to work hard and I need to get things done, but I'm going to take time out of my work time to come and just worship you and put you first. And the Lord is so blessed by that. It's almost like he says, you give me that small amount of time. I'll take care of the time missed. Trust me, I'll replace whatever you think you've lost. God completely forgave the Israelites. There is no sin too great that can separate us from God. Jesus bore the penalty for our sins so that we can have access to God unhindered by our own nature. It is out of response to what God has done for us that we then choose to be obedient and serve Him. Come and see that God is good and merciful. He doesn't want to judge us. He wants to set us free. Don't be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.